You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Love God, love people, reach the world. That's our mission statement here at In Focus. And it sounds amazing and it sounds biblical because it is biblical. It's just a, a, a mashup and a restating, if you will, of the great greatest commandment and the great commission the greatest commandment being that we would love the Lord our God love him with all of our heart soul and mind that we would also then love our neighbor as ourself and then on top of that with that love that we would do what the great commission says in Matthew 28 that we would go into all of the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and Jesus said and I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age so you put all of that together and you, you make a mission statement out of it and it sounds amazing and it is amazing, but it's so much harder to do than what it sounds like. Oh, love God, yes, yes, that's a good idea. Love people, okay, I can do that. Reach the world. But then you get into the specifics of what that looks like, the practical outworking of what it looks like to, to love God, what it means to love God, and what it means to really love people, what it actually looks like in real relationships day after day, week after week, and what it means to be the church, what it means to be an actual Christian. And it can be one of the most painful discoveries that we go through in life. To finally figure out that, oh, it's not as easy as the mission statement sounds. It's not as simple as just calling myself a, a Christian. Man, that was hard or that was difficult or that was painful. And what we find is that, yes, it's a wonderful thought and it's a great title and it's a great exhortation, but it's impossible without God's help. Amen. What I mean is it's easier to accept a broad stroke title like we've been discussing for the last few weeks, it's easier to just accept the fact that, yes, I'm a Christian. That's a broad stroke title. Or, or the last few weeks, yes, I'm a, I'm a king, I'm a prophet, I'm a priest. That's, that's who we are as the church, embodying him in the earth. Yeah, I like that. I, I can take on that title. Sign me up, pastor. We can receive those broad titles and even a broad exhortation. Love God. Yes, I want to love God. Love people. Yes, that's a good idea. As a Christian, I'm going to love people. Sign me up for that, too. But then, I may be stating the obvious, but saying this, and I'll say this, all those titles and all those actions, titles, Christian, actions, love each other, are somewhat subjective, aren't they? At least they are to us. Like, if I just said, hey, why don't you love each other? Like, cool, that's a good idea. But then how do we do that? And how are we doing that in such a way that lines up with God's word? Here's what I mean. So when I say it's subjective to say I'm a Christian or it's subjective to say I I I'm going to love people, let here's what I mean. When you are maybe in a situation with a friend or a person that you hang out with and there's this interaction with them and someone else and it seems like they're not being very nice, you might actually say hey could you be a little more kind and their response might be I am being kind to which your thought is this if that's you being kind I don't want to see you being mean 
Now, we can begin to fill in the blank there with whatever you want to fill it in with. If that's you being patient, I don't want to see you impatient. I'm sure that's been thought and said in my house. Well, Dad, if that's you being patient, I don't want to see you get impatient. If that's you being loving, I don't want to see you being unloving. If that's you being generous, I don't want to see you being stingy. You go on and fill in every fruit of the Spirit that we can think of and that we can find in God's Word. Find them all and say, if that's you being this, then I, and if I go through them, if that's me being patient, if that's me being kind, if that's me being loving, if that's me being long-suffering, and then I cringe Maybe all of us probably would as I think about all of those things that I'm supposed to be and the things that I'm supposed to do and I'm not really like Christ in all of them. Sometimes any of them. I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I'm not long-suffering. I don't hold my tongue. And yet all of these things are descriptors and, and duties and responsibilities of a believer, of a Christian, of the church. And here's what we see when it comes to specifically, practically, practically interrelationally being what God has saved me to be, being who we're supposed to be as a church, it is so much harder than that mission statement on the wall. Being called or calling yourself something is, and actually being that something are sometimes two different realities. I know people that have called themselves a singer-artist. The reality is, uh, no, you're not. And uh, you can't sing. I didn't say that to anybody personally, so I you say that that is yes somebody should say that that's actually speaking the truth the American Idol effect baby you can't sing now go do something else that God made you to do but it ain't that there's a lot of things like that I'm an influencer who are you influencing I mean we just call ourselves that that's like the new thing I'm an influencer just call yourself an influencer but the title and the actual practical outworking I mean I could call myself a golf professional but nobody called me as a captain's choice for the Ryder Cup why because I'm not no matter what I call myself and yet this is how it kind of works down in the church and in the other areas of being a Christian that we have these titles and these things that we don't actually live out we just have this broad stroke and we're like yes I like the name I just don't like the responsibility and here's the truth titles without the corresponding responsibilities those are things we don't like I like the title but the corresponding duty responsibility obligation requirements that come with the title are a little bit of a different story like being an adult like everybody all of y'all at one point in time said I wish you'd treat me like an adult in your mind in your heart somewhere you said it and although you wanted to be have the title of adult you didn't really want the responsibility of the adult what's the responsibility of the adult well here's your car insurance here's your gas bill Here's your power bill here's your food bill here's your uh, water bill here's your insurance bill what is being an adult paying bills that's what it is. <laughs> CEO. I want to be manager. I want to be boss. I want to be those things. And yet sometimes we get the title and we don't have the corresponding duties and responsibilities and obligations. And here's what happens. A title without accountability creates a counterfeit. I got the title, but I don't 
take care of any of the responsibilities or the duties that are given to me as having that title, that I actually prove that it's more than a title. That's why it's so important as the church that we accept and live out our calling together as the body of Christ within the context of real relationships in the church. That's how we are who we say we are. This is what Philippians says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the upward call? It's the call of God to God. It's the call of God to be more like God. So the question I have to ask myself as a Christian who's been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who's been called to show forth his praises in the earth, who's been called to shine like the stars in the darkness around me, am I moving toward God or do I just like the title? Are we moving towards God or do we just have a title where we've titled ourselves something with no accountability? And if so, then why? Why do we do this? We're in week four of this series, My People. We're just talking about what it means to be God's people. And then locally, at this local expression at InFocus Church, what does it mean that we are God's people? Looking at who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do because of who we are. What we're supposed to do in the earth today instead of just have a title as a Christian or the church. If we're in fact God's people, we're spiritual family. Therefore, what we said all along, you are my people because we are first God's people. You're my people, whether you like it or not, because we're God's people. And if we're God's people, you're my people. Actually, I love my people. I love doing the things that God's called us to do together. I loved being out downtown yesterday with so many of you who came out to serve the city. I love the fact that we get to come back tonight. I love the fact that we get to baptize some people this afternoon. I love the fact that we get to spend time together and live life together and do things together and look out for one another and pray for one another, do all the things we're gonna talk about today because you are my people, because we are God's people. So as God's people, we are first and foremost divine image bearers. We're supposed to be shining lights in the darkness. That's what I said a moment ago. That's what Philippians 2.15 states. We're to show forth the praises of the one who has called us out, who said we are chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's the title. That's what we are. But what are we supposed to do as the chosen royal priesthood? Show forth God's praise in the earth. It's not just the title of the chosen. Here's the reality. There is both a title and a task, an identity and a duty. And they go together. The title is divine image bearer. The subtitle of the tasks and the, the identities or the duties are young kings, as we said in week one, doing unpopular things by serving one another and serving people around us. It's, it's being young priests, mediating God's presence, making sure that wherever we go, people are prepared to encounter the presence of God. It's being young prophets in the earth today, speaking forth and living out, prophetically speaking the truth, embodying the truth of God's word through our lives. That's what it means. And those are titles, right? I'm a priest, prophet, king, because Jesus was that, and he's called me into that. But it's not just a title. It has verifiable actions that should come out of my life. So we are to be one church, one family, one people, one body, living impossible, yet practical lives together. Why do I say impossible? Because it is. 
It's impossible for us to live as family with all of our different thoughts and all of our different backgrounds and all of the divisions that our world creates. It's impossible to do that apart from Christ. This is the type of living that Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He wasn't talking about whether or not you could lift the, uh, you know, 45 weight dumbbells. Well, all things God's possible. That's not what he's talking about. We like to quote those scriptures and, and say that for things that it has absolutely nothing to do with. You can use the scripture. Nobody's offended by it. But what I'm telling you is this is what it means. Things that are impossible for you to do in your humanity and your human strength are possible with God. And it makes people recognize that God is Lord of your life. Beyond our natural and normal human capacity. That's what we're talking about. And this title of this morning's message is my passionate people. We've been talking about my people, but I just want you to know you're a passionate people. We're supposed to be a passionate people. Don't turn to your neighbor and say you're my passionate people. Don't do that. That would be really awkward and weird. So don't. If you have your Bible though, you can turn to me with me today because that won't be awkward or weird to have a Bible and to read it and to study it. That's a good thing. Romans chapter 12 verse 9. And I want to look at this morning is what it practically looks like to live as God's people, the church, who are passionate about God and passionate about the things of God as well as fulfilling tangible, practical, relational interaction that we're all called to do here with one another. So in context, Romans 12, 1 through 8 sets this up in verse 9. I don't have time to go there, but Romans 12, 1 talks about we're to be a living sacrifice. There's another part, Romans 12, 3, I believe, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what Paul is doing, he's saying, listen, he's taking all those verses and he's setting this up for verse 9 of who we are and what we're supposed to do. And in one sentence, he lists like a whole list of Christian ethics or righteous living in Christ. So starting in verse 9, he puts out this rapid fire exhortation that we're about to read. He's saying, Christians, this is how you're practically to live lives as Christians with one another in the body of Christ. Not just people that you see on Sunday and smile at and then never talk to or never think about. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's not being the church. Here's what he says, verse nine, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Lord, we just ask that you'd bless your word today in and through our lives. So for the remainder of our time, I want to just drill down a little bit into verse 9, and we'll unpack these verses a little bit more. What I need you to understand is what I said a moment ago in the original language of the Greek, which we translated obviously into English so we can understand it unless you know how to read Greek. But verse 9 through 13 are actually one long sentence with this one overarching idea that love must be genuine. And then he goes to say what a genuine love looks like. But love must be genuine. The rest of the verses provide practical descriptions of what genuine, authentic love looks like. It provides the duties and the responsibilities of having the title of a Christian who loves with the love of God. 
So verse 9 says, love is to be without hypocrisy. Some translations say let love be genuine or sincere, which I just mentioned. Basically, love is the wellspring from which all of these other things are going to flow out of. And without unhypocritical love, if you're going to try to pursue all of these other things that follow in the next verses, you will fail miserably. If you try to be devoted to one another in brotherly love without love being genuine and authentic, forget it. And yes, heavy emphasis on the T, forget it. If we are honest with ourselves, we can be so mixed up about what love really is, how it behaves and what it's supposed to do and what it's not supposed to do. And we wouldn't know true love if it like bit us on the neck like a romantic loving vampire story. Like we'd ever do something like that to describe love. Oh wait, yes we do, we did. And some of y'all read them and went to the movies and liked them. Oh, twilight, that's love. Okay, vampire love, good, good vampire love. That ought to be something that I try to pursue and copy. Whether it's music, movies, books, there's so many false narratives about what love is or what it isn't. I mean, have you ever done a search of songs with not just about love or a metaphor or a euphemism about love, but just actually had love in the title. Like I did a, this Google search or whatever on my Apple Music. I'm like, give me all the songs with love in the title. And then I went down a deep, dark hole of time killing. I mean, I killed a half a day. <laughs> not really, but it felt like it. I'm like, okay, okay, get out of here. Like we all, y'all, we all have been there where you're killing time doing something that is absolutely meaningless. Like hours later, you go, wow, that was a total waste of half of my life. Well, I did that today or this week when I looked at titles of songs with love in them. Found things like, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> Tina Turner. Or one of my favorite, Love Bites. Def Leppard. <laughs> love Bites. It's the, I don't know what I ever said, but I, I listened to that back in high school. It's bringing me to my knees. <laughs> Oh, oh, yes. Hey, I kept going. That's why I said I was there for a while. Love is a losing game. Amy Winehouse. Way back, Elvis said he can't help falling in love. Demi Lovato says, I love me. Justin Bieber says, well, good. Love yourself. Foreigner wanted to know what love is. And Beyonce and Jay-Z are just drunk in love. <laughs> That's just a handful. So with all these helpful definitions and wholesome metaphors for love, throw in the vampires too, how in the world are we supposed to know what love's supposed to be like? We have to dig into God's word to find the truth, the truth about genuine, authentic love. And here's verse 9. Paul is literally saying genuine love is, here's the first thing, it's unhypocritical. Why would Paul say that love is unhypocritical except that we probably battle having hypocritical love in our life? First, we need to know what drives this hypocrisy in love. It's pride. Pride drives a lot of bad things in our lives, doesn't it? But pride says, I want people to think I'm great. I'm not great, but I want people to think that I'm great. Pride says, if everybody knew who you really were, they wouldn't accept you. They wouldn't love you. So why don't you just pretend that you're somebody that you're not? Just fake it. 
But here's the truth of the gospel, and here's what God's word says. His love says it doesn't matter what you've done or what you've been through. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more. There's nothing you could do to make God love you less. He's proven that he loves you, Romans says, by sending his son to demonstrate his love for you that while you were still far from him and a sinner, he died for you and took your place. He's already demonstrated that. He loves you. That's true love. Then consequently, if you're a Christian, the church, recipients of that love that I just mentioned, we're to be kings, priests, and prophets displaying love without hypocrisy by declaring God's love is unconditional. Therefore, by God's grace, I'm going to love you like God first loved me. But it's so much easier said than done. So let's unpack hypocrisy a little bit more to see how we can best avoid loving hypocritically. Because it's a temptation that we all battle. One of the ways that hypocrisy rears its ugly head, I think the most obvious, the one that we battle the most, it's a human condition, but man, today with all of our social media and uh, really what I said last week, a collective identity crisis I think that we suffer from, here's one of the ways that hypocrisy shows up. We try to make the outside look better than the inside. No, none of y'all ever done that. I know, we are, what you see is what you get. I mean, we'll even say that, and it's not even true. Man, what you see is what you get. And deep down inside, I'm not getting what is actually there. None of y'all have, have probably ever done this, but it'd be like doing something on the outside and on the inside feeling something completely opposite. Okay, I'll give you an example because I know y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. It'd be like somebody moved into your neighborhood and you took a, a batch of cookies over there to them. I don't, pre-made, store-made, it doesn't matter. You just took cookies and said, just welcome to the neighborhood. We're so glad that you're here. Can't wait to get to know you. And they shut the door and you walk away hoping that they move before you even get back home. It, it's, it, that's, that's, that's hypocritical. That's on the outside I'm doing something, but on the inside I, I feel completely different. What about the possibility that you see somebody at the store that you go to church with or the, or the gas station that you go to church with or at the restaurant you go to church with? Hey! It's so good to see you! Man! I have missed not seeing you. And then you walk away going, if I don't ever see them again, it'll be too soon. <laughs> it's when your friend's child does something spectacular, awesome, maybe really noteworthy. And you go, that's so wonderful. I'm so happy for your kids. And you walk away going, I can't stand their snotty brats. I know none of y'all have ever done anything like that. But that's what hypocritical love would be like if you're ever tempted to do it. This is what Jesus, this is what Paul, this is what God is trying to say to us. 
that we can't love like that. We can't say one thing, and that's how hypocrisy shows up. We try to make it look good on the outside, and on the inside, things are all jacked up. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, this is crazy. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. I don't know, that's hardcore right there. I mean, the cookie thing, and the just thinking things, and seeing, seeing, and smiling, and being all fake, that's one thing. But man, if I give away all that I have to give to the poor, if I even give my body up to, to sacrifice for, for that, and my heart's not in the right place, Paul is saying, you gain nothing. What? He's saying if your motivation is wrong, it's for nothing. You can serve, you can give, you can give above and beyond to, to all the offerings that, that the church has. You could close the gap. You could do fundraisers. You could go on mission trips. And if your heart is without love, if it's not genuine, it's of no gain for you. Now, it doesn't mean that it wasn't gain for somebody. It doesn't mean that what you did didn't help somebody. It probably did. It doesn't mean that what you did didn't maybe lead somebody to Christ or point them to the Lord and his love. Maybe it did. But what Paul is saying is if your heart and your motivation isn't right and in line with true, genuine love, then it is of no eternal value. It is no credit of righteousness to you. Man, that's tough. And Jesus dealt with this type of hypocrisy. Matthew 15, and he's saying, you hypocrites, you rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrine, the precepts of man. Here's what's happening. There's this external praise coming out of their mouth, but it's not accompanied by an internal praise in their hearts. It's like it doesn't matter. I don't care how high you jump or how high you lift your hands at church. Is there internal praise coming out of your heart? Jesus called this hypocrisy. And let's be clear, Jesus could not stand hypocrisy. Matthew 23, verse 25, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you good church-going folk is basically what he's saying. These are good people. And he says, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Everything on the outside is taken care of. To the nth degree, you've got it all figured out on the outside. You look like you're put together perfectly, but on the inside, there's something else, and it's not love. He goes on in verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness hypocrisy manifests itself in our lives when we try to make the outside look better than the inside we want to put it more spiritually when we hide internal sin by putting up a moral external facade and this helps us do it really well I'm going to make my coffee look like the best cup of coffee ever I'm going to make my friends look like the best friends ever and they could be but there's always this tendency for me to make things look better than they actually are because I don't feel accepted or I don't feel loved or I don't feel like I'm getting the attention that I should or I don't have the title that I want. 
I believe another way as human beings that we allow our love to be hypocritical is by being masters of deflection. What I mean is we get really good at becoming finger-pointing fanatics. We can point the fingers at people with the best of them. We hide our own flaws by drawing attention to other people's flaws by pointing at what's wrong in their life. This is classic playground behavior right here, isn't it? Like from elementary school on up, we don't feel good about ourselves, so we make fun of somebody else. And what happens is we just turn into adults that still are acting like elementary kids on the playground. Because I don't feel secure in who I am and who God has made me, so I'm going to point something out. Or maybe there's some sin and some really dark stuff going on behind the scenes internally, and I externally want to look good. So what I'll do is I'll deflect by pointing at all the stuff and the sin and the things that are worse in your life so that I can take the attention off of the spotlight that needs to be on my life. There's a classic example, maybe a scripture that you've all heard. It's certainly been quoted a lot mostly misquoted, but Luke 6 says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now this does not mean that we don't hold people accountable, because what? A title without accountability is going to create a counterfeit. A title of a Christian without the accountability of the body of Christ is going to create a bunch of counterfeit Christians. And so this doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable. It means that somebody is pretending to be concerned about sin in somebody else's life while ignoring the sin in their own life. Saying before doesn't mean that you won't, but before you go and take the speck out of their eye, make sure you're taking care of the log in your own first. And then go do some speck and dusting, you know, helping out. And dusting, I don't even know what word that is. I just made one up. So that's what happens when you talk too much. You start making words up. Paul is saying real love doesn't act this way. Love without hypocrisy is what we're supposed to be living. And if it's hypocritical, it's not authentic love because hypocrisy is a fabrication. It's a lie. It's play acting. It's, oh, God bless you, brother. And on the inside, it's something else, brother. So Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. Why do we do this? Why do we actually do this hypocritical thing? Why do we pretend when there's something going on on the inside? Why are we honest with ourselves and with one another? Why? Why are we hypocritical lovers instead of genuine lovers? Or if we want to go back to a love song, why are we part-time lovers when we should be full-time lovers? I know I'm dating myself. But simply put, here's the reason why we do this. Here's the reason why we're just part-time lovers of God. We desire the praise and the approval of people more than the approval of God. I want them to like me. I want them to accept me. And when we care, when we finally get to the place where we care more about what God thinks than what people think about us, we'll begin to do things that only God could do through us, which causes people to think about God. See, when you're concerned about what people think about you, whenever you do that thing that you want to take credit for, that's all they're thinking about is you. But when you're concerned more about pleasing God with your life, despite what other people might think about you, here's what happens. People begin to notice something supernatural and that's not possible by your human strength. And they begin to not notice you, but they begin to notice the God that is in you. 
That is so much more powerful and effective in what love does. They'll think of things like, now how did they do that? Now how did that church accomplish that? Now how do they love that, each other that way? That's what begins to happen. And Jesus tells us to quit living for the approval of other people. That's why I have such a battle with celebrity and popularity, so to speak, in the church. There's only one who I've seen handle the celebrity and the popularity well, and he was crucified. I don't think celebrity and popularity and Christianity go together very well. It doesn't mean that we can't leverage the things that God gives us to leverage or the, the influence that we do against, I am an influencer, whatever. It doesn't matter, you, you can do that. But you better make sure that you're loving unhypocritically. Matthew 6 says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. And when you pray, you must not be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. What's he saying? He's like, look, if you want the popularity of people, you can have it, but that's all you'll get. You can have it. You can get it, but that's all you're going to get. And as quick as it comes, it'll go. One day they're calling you the king of kings. And the next day they're saying, crucify him. One day your, your video goes viral. The next day, people don't even know who you are. You can get it. You can get the likes. You can get the praise. You can get the recognition. You can get the approval. But that's all you'll get. It, here's what love does. Love does not crave the praises of people. Love has been delivered and set free from the treadmill of that kind of bondage. And it is bondage. And it is bondage to get up every morning and wonder if somebody is going to love or accept me. And it is freedom to get up every morning and to know that I am loved and accepted no matter what because Jesus has already proven that and he is always faithless even when I, he is always faithful even when I'm faithless. Instead, love doesn't think much about itself at all, actually. Our loving eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ and all that God is for us in Christ. So the command to love without hypocrisy is actually a command to know Christ more, to love Christ more, and to find your satisfaction in Christ alone more so that you stop craving the praise and the approval of other people. But like I said earlier, we're passionate people. And so verse 9, there's this odd juxtaposition, and I'll, I'll begin to land this plane, if you will. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then there's this odd juxtaposition. Like you think, well, what's love going to look? And then it's like, abhor what is evil. You know what Paul said? He said, you can tell how genuine your love for God is by our hatred of evil. Somehow we've created this love that means that we tolerate everything. Yet our lives should be marked by this mantra. Love what God loves and hate what God hates. Because if something is evil, it should be abhorred and hated. And to finish this off, this, this kind of one verse, he says, cling to what is good. And the word cling here is like the idea of welding something together. Weld yourself, even if it is burned through the refining fire of Christ. Weld yourself to something that is good. 
But isn't that the problem? We don't really know oftentimes or we are subjective about what is both good and evil. So the implication of this particular verse, if we're going to be loving unhypocritically, abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good, here's the implication. Good and evil are objective, not subjective. Scripture is telling us to reject the philosophical or humanist idea that evil is defined by what I say is evil. What I abhor and what I say is good. Because that's what we're going to hold fast to. And that's good news for all of us. Because if we're just going to hold fast to what is good in my mind, then we're going to hold fast to, you know, chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream and pancakes with peanut butter on them. I'm going to hold good to that. Anybody like pancakes with peanut butter on them? Well, you all have to. Because I say it's good. Aren't you glad you don't have to do what I say is good? No, it's not subjective. Now, there may be things that you think is good that I think is nasty. Like, I don't want to eat that. I don't want to do that. Uh, whatever it is. Keevan, he doesn't like roaches. I love roaches. Just kidding. I don't. I don't. I don't. Man, you should have seen the office, Keevan and Josiah share. That thing was turned upside down the other day because that boy saw one little tiny roach in the corner. It, 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 was, it, it was tiny. Don't be, don't, be, don't be lying. I walk over there, it looked like somebody had flipped, like Jesus had come over there, flipped up the tables. I'm like, what are y'all doing in here? Just as I, he has got to find that roach before he can relax. I mean, they are evil. That's fine. We could all agree on that. That's fine. But good and evil are objective. Watch this. Evil and good aren't created by what we affirm is evil and good. It's objective, concrete reality outside of our preferences as defined by God's word. In other words, good and evil don't change. We change. Our hearts cling to things because we decide that we desire them. And our hearts reject things intensely because we don't desire them. And Paul says, here is good and here is evil. Now bring your emotions and your will into conformity to who is objectively there, what is objectively there, and what God says. So when you face objective evil, you're to hate it. And when you face objective good, you're to cling to it. Be welded to it. Don't let go. The reason there's such a thing as objective good outside of ourselves is because that there is a God that is outside of ourselves. We're not God. He is. And most concretely and specifically, God has made it clear and known what is objectively and historically good in Jesus Christ in Scripture. If there was no God and there was no Christ, then good would be subjective, not objective. Good would be in the eye of the beholder, especially the beholder that had the most power. Might would make right. And God says, no, what I say is right is right and I'm glad that we serve an almighty God so that he can make what is right right what is good good and what is evil we will know this means wherever here's what this means this means wherever there's injustice and evil somebody being treated wrongly or or abused or whatever that we can stand up in the face of that no matter how much power they may have and say this is wrong and all your power doesn't make this right because there is a God who is above you and therefore there is a right and wrong and we have an objective reality that is apart from you and I'm going to cling to what is good and hate what is evil This is where passionate people come in as the church. That's why I said we have to be passionate, that we will not obey this verse by willpower alone. 
The title of a Christian is given to those who are passionate about what God is passionate about. We must be passionate about what God says is good and evil. Why? Because if we love evil, we will do evil. And if we hate evil, we will refrain from it. At the same time, if we cling to what is good, not just acknowledge it, but become welded to it, we will do what is good. And here's the interesting thing. This is why, like I said, it's, it's, it's important that we cling to what is good. Why? Because do you know there are things in your life that maybe you're going through, but you've probably been through or you will go through that didn't look good, but were what God had for you that was going to be good? And I think we all understand and all realize there are things in our lives that externally looked good, looked fun, looked like I was going to enjoy that and I want that. But God knew that subjectively that was good to me, but objectively that was going to be evil for me. So he kept me from it. So when I cling to what is good, it not only allows me to do what is good, it helps me to avoid what is evil, even if it looks like something that it isn't. And the enemy isn't going to give you something evil that's going to look bad. He's going to overpromise and underdeliver every single time. The last implication is that genuine love hates. That's what I said earlier. We've created some kind of love that says we don't hate anything, and that's just not true. Matter of fact, some of the subtitles in some of your Bibles will actually say in this particular passage in Romans, a love that hates. Paul uses the word abhor, meaning loathe, despise, have an intense or passionate aversion to something. Where people are being hurt by evil, love must hate or it doesn't love people. If you don't hate, then you're not going to love. There are things in this world that destroy human beings made in the image of God that are evil. And if you don't hate those things, then you don't love those people. All right, that was just verse 9. So let's move on to verse 10. Well, let's just stay here till about 2. Just kidding. Just verse 9. That's just love genuinely. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And you know why I spent so much time on that? Because if we don't do that, then these next verses that I read earlier, and I'm going to read right now again just to close this out, we'll never do it. We can't. See, when we genuinely love one another without hypocrisy in the church, then verse 10 is possible. We'll be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We'll give preference to one another in honor. We'll not lag behind in diligence, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. We'll even bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. case of being devoted, I won't unpack all of this, maybe we'll do this later on, but I think about being devoted to one another as the body, you and I. That's more than being nice to each other at church. That's more than smiling at me and telling me it's so good to see you pastor at church if you walk away wishing you never see me again. It's more than that. God's people are called to feel brotherly affection. What does that mean? It means a willingness to drop everything that I'm doing to go and do for somebody else who's in my spiritual family, my brother and sister, like they're my own family. Again, a command to us that is impossible beyond our natural capacity, but possible in Christ. And that's the way John says that everybody's going to know that we're the church and that we, that we belong to Jesus because we love each other this way.
So Jesus has loved us without limits. He's loved us without holding anything back. He proved that on the cross, and he asked us to do the same with one another, not to go to the cross, but to die to ourselves. This is how people will know that we're God's people. This is how people will know we are the living, breathing representation and reflection of his glory in the church in the earth today. This is how they know that they can be a part of God's family as well. We constantly say this, that we are a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. But guess what? That's not our mission. Hear me. That's not our mission. Our mission is to love God, love people, and reach the world. Our mission is to love without hypocrisy, to hate, abhor what is evil, and to cling to what is good. And here's what the Bible tells me in Romans, that if I do that, if I love genuinely, I hate what is evil, and I cling to what is good, then the natural outworking of that, a supernatural reflection of that, is going to be a church that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, full of young kings, young priests, young prophets, being who God has called us to be. Not just in time but in word and deed together. That's the people of God being filled with an authentic, genuine, unhypocritical love. That's our mission. And our mission has an effect and an impact, and that's what it looks like to be who we're called to be. A multi-ethnic, multi-generational people that love God, love people, and reach the world with the love of Christ that we've experienced ourselves. Ooh, that's good stuff. That's who you are. That's what you're a part of. That's the title, but it's also the responsibility. And in Christ, we can do both. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.